This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Joris Peels, and this is the 3D Pod, and I'm here today with Maxwell Vogue. Hello, everyone. And uh, we're, Max and I have got a really exciting thing today because we're going to be talking about 3D scanning that we know a little bit about, but not a lot. So we decided to get our first guest. And our first guest is uh, Michael Raphael. And uh, Michael has been working in 3D scanning for many, many years. And uh, he works, he's the CEO of Direct Dimensions. And that's a company that uh, does a lot of really specialized 3D scanning things like it scans ships and it does uh, 3D scanning for CGI for really large Hollywood movies. And it 3D scans uh, people and things for the military and all sorts of applications. And uh, Michael's one of the number one uh, 3D scanning people worldwide. He's a really great person and also a really, really very experienced uh, person as well uh, who really knows what he's talking about 3D scanning. So he's the right uh, guy to tell, tell us a little bit more about the subject. So I'm, I'm really excited for this interview because uh, I think 3D scanning has definitely come a long way in the last few years. And so I'm curious to see what Michael has to say about what the status is of the industry of scanning and what uh, techniques and things of that nature that they've been working on at his company. Yeah, totally, man. I, mean, I think, I think uh, 3D scanning, there's always been, it's been like the great big hope. It's supposed to be like be the key technology that connects our technology, 3D printing, with the digital world. To me, it's always kind of had come up short, right? It's always been a little bit too difficult. It's always been a little bit too hard or too expensive. And I'm just wondering like how fast it's catching up. And there's a lot of exciting uh, frontiers of the digitization of the world where 3D scanning is the key input technology. And I think uh, it'd be really interesting to learn uh, how that is shaping up. Yeah, I also think it's one of the potential ways of helping to solve the software problem of 3D printing, whereas, you know, if we can make something by hand out of clay or something of that nature and then scan it to have a basis, it's a lot more helpful than starting from scratch on the computer. So yeah, it'll be, it should be fun. And with us right now is Michael Raphael. He's the CEO of Direct Dimensions, and uh, well, he's our first guest, our first guest ever. Uh, so I hope that uh, that's a very enjoyable experience for you guys as well. And uh, Michael's a 3D scanning expert, and uh, he's been scanning things since uh, 1995, and in that whole time period to now at Direct Dimensions, they've done some really, really very exciting high-end scanning stuff. So things uh, for movies and movie sets, uh, really high-end stuff uh, for uh, uh, skeletons and, and artifacts and things for museums, spanning you know the work for very technical work to very kind of art-oriented work. Michael is um, yeah, the go-to guy for 3D scanning. He's also my personal kind of go-through uh, 3D scanning guru. So if I need to know anything about 3D scanners or 3D scanning uh, technologies or what's emerging in that area, uh, Michael's the, the person I t- always turn to because he just has so much knowledge on that. Michael, welcome, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Yuris. I really appreciate all, all that you said there, and uh, it's pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. I didn't realize I was your first guest. That's it's awesome. I'm thrilled to be part of that. Yes, we've been scanning, as you've said, for a very long time, and. Uh, we go in a lot of different directions and, and a lot of applications, a lot of technology, and uh, it's been a lot of fun over the years. And we're doing some, we do, we get to do some really fun things. So one of the things I was really interested in is it's just like you guys did a, uh, you do a lot of lidar stuff, right? And uh, you did, you did that also, I think, for the U.S. constellation or something like that. We did. So uh, you know, lidar uh, or terrestrial base scanning, spherical scanning, it's got different words is becoming very popular. Uh, the idea of putting a scanner on a tripod and 
scanning large objects like a boat, like a large ship, uh, or buildings and airplanes and sites and uh, you know historic sites and facilities and scenes and things like that is becoming a very popular method of uh, what I'll generally call a lot of people are using the term reality capture, right? Uh, we've mm-hmm. seen that coined by a lot of companies and individuals. Um, so yes, the USS Constellation project was interesting. You know, just a quick story. It goes back a number of years, actually. We were, uh, you know, deep in the scanning technology. And one day uh, somewhere I saw that the U.S. Constellation was in dry dock, actually, for repair. Uh, it was on the cover of a news, local news magazine, a newspaper. And I called him up and I said, uh, you know, hey, I, I see your, your boat's in dry dock. Uh, you mind if I you mind if I come down and scan it? <laughs> and they looked at you know they sounded like sure they the had no idea. <laughs> exactly, they had no idea what I was talking about. That they basically just said, "Sure, come on down, have at it." We don't we don't know what that is. Um, and we did, and we went down and we scanned it, really just for fun because we could, right? And uh, we wanted to see, you know, what we could do with it. And uh, we did end up scanning it. It was a really uh, lovely day in the dry dock. It, uh, it was really super cool to see the ship uh, out of water like that. This is the USS Constellation. There's like two of them, right? There's like so the original there's the wood constellation, one. Uh, there's the yeah. Constellation, which is here oh, yeah. in, in Baltimore, where we're based yeah. in Maryland. Yeah. And in Boston is the Constitution. Oh, okay, uh, okay, okay. And we've actually been involved in the scanning of that as well. Um, okay, okay, okay. What's interesting is the, the Constitution in Boston is actually still a registered U.S. Navy ship. So uh-huh. it's actually under control of the U.S. Navy. Uh, it's, it's very serious and they, and it was recently completely renovated and restored and scanned as part of that process. And we were involved in that. So we do have, you know, we, and we've actually scanned the, uh, the local boat, the, uh, constellation, uh, a couple of different times with increasingly better technology over the years. So uh-huh. our last scan, which we did maybe three, three years ago was in dry dock again. And, uh, we used a, a newer Faro focus, uh, that was able to get color and capture all the inside, the outside, we have really spectacular, you know, what if something should happen? You know, right? That's, mm-hmm. the, that's the bottom line. What if something should happen to that boat? How mm-hmm. does one even begin the process of scanning something as large as, a, as an 18th or 19th century ship? <laughs> right. So these LiDAR scanners are pretty amazing. Um, we have these, some of these scanners go 350 meters. Uh, there are other models from other groups that go kilometers. Um, we, we've been very focused on... Uh, scanning in the AEC space, which is architectural engineering construction, which is a giant industry. Uh, you know, basically all things construction, uh, including architecture, design, and all the fabrication for uh, building components and whatnot. And, um, you know, th- the problem is, right, I mean, you got a very, you know, there's infrastructure everywhere all over the world. And if you think about it, right, how long has CAD been around? Uh, not very long. And certainly in the architecture space, maybe 10 years, 15 years at the most. So very, very few buildings or any structures of this nature are in the computer and in 3D. And nowadays, right, so you have architects in the last five, 10 years that have grown up on the computer 100%. And so they're faced with the challenge of how do they, how do, they do re- design, renovation design, if you will, for an existing building, an existing facility. So here, hence LIDAR scanning and, and why it's really grown in popularity in the last 10 years. Uh, the vendors, the OEMs who make this technology are really doing well, selling it. Uh, there's lots of service bureaus like myself around the country and around the world using this technology to scan. Architecture firms, in some cases, certainly construction firms, are adopting this technology. And so these scanners, right, so they're sitting on a tripod typically. 
they spin around and they can take a full 360 degree spherical scan in three to five minutes, sometimes one minute. Sometimes you take a longer, higher resolution scan for 10 minutes or something like that. Um, don't get me wrong, 20 years ago or even 15 years ago, these scans would take you know, 20 minutes to 30 minutes, even an hour, depending on what you're, what you're doing, because the technology was much slower, much heavier and, you know, more unwieldy and difficult to deal with. Uh, but it's come a long way. These things are almost as small as large cameras uh, today, very portable, literally all sit in a small suitcase that you can take even in luggage on your overhead in the airplane and simply carry to a job site, put a tripod up and scan. Um, now, all of these scanners that we're talking about are what we call line of sight, right? So line of sight means you can't see through things. You only scan what you see from that vantage point of where the scanner is. So you end up having to move the scanner around to take lots of shots, and you get lots of data. Don't get me wrong. One of the scanners we're using now collects, you ready for this, 2 million points per second. <laughs> um, Hard drive much? Uh, yeah, yeah, we are. <laughs> Quantities of data is exploding in this space. It's becoming a real problem, um, and I can tell you some stories. But do you rely on overlap then, so that like when you, you know, I put the tripod, I'm scanning, you know, 300 feet of the uh, of the ship, and then I have to move it 250 feet to the left or the right to then scan the next one, and then I want 50 feet of overlap or something of that nature, or do you try and cut it off at just the edge? So that, that's the strategy. You're, you're nailing it. I mean, that's kind of the way you do it. Um, the numbers, I don't know that we actually look at numbers. We, we would map it out uh, kind of map uh, in our minds or maybe even on a sheet of right. paper if we have that luxury and sort of say, okay, let's put the scanners here, here, and here. What you're really trying to do is worry about line of sight like you're describing. You want to worry about trying to capture the, the you know, it's line of sight. So if you have contours that are sort of facing away, we call that fall off and we don't want fall off. We want, to, we want it to be a nice, what we call normal, uh, normal to the surface shot, right? So you kind of move it along and you take a bunch of scans and the overlap is almost automatic. Uh, there's always so much data, uh, generally, unless you skip too far, uh, where you get a lot of data that overlaps. And yes, it's the overlap of that data that allows you to do what we call registration. So reg the process of registration is the aligning of all of these data sets together um, to form one, ultimately one single cohesive cloud of points. And that is really kind of the term cloud of points or point cloud that we use a lot in this business. Most all of the scanners that we use generally ge generate a point cloud, uh, which is kind of your raw, your raw data for from any of these scanners. Mm -hmm. Point clouds are basically the XYZ location of every point that you've scanned. Often there's other information that's captured. It could be the color, for example. You might get RGB for every point that you've captured, uh, which we can do. You can get uh, what we call normal, which is it's kind of telling you how far off the direction it's going. You can get intensity values, kind of gives us an understanding of what the materials are, or at least the differences in the materials as you pan around the, uh, the objects and the surfaces. Are you capturing infrared as well? We do have one scanner that actually does have an infrared capability, um, and I should talk about this. Uh, there's probably others out there, but at least this one, which is probably kind of on the prosumer level of this technology, right? So, I mean, you know, you always have your, your kind of consumer level technology that somewhere plays a, a role in what, all the things we're talking about. You have your 
very professional versions of this technology, sort of that scanner I mentioned that captures 2 million points a second. I mean, these things are in the 70, 80, $100,000 range, uh, but they're very professional. And, you know, if you're doing very serious projects, these are the tools you need. But there's one particular scanner, maybe others, but one in particular that is kind of in that prosumer world. Um, and just for the sake of a data point, it's in the $20,000 uh, level. And it's called, I don't want to give it any major plug here, but it's called the BLK uh, scanner from, from Leica. Ooh, and maybe people, yeah, that's, yeah, BLK. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's a very small device, very portable. I mean, it literally can fit in, almost in the palm of your hand. It's a LiDAR scanner like we've been describing. I think the range on this thing is in the 70 meter. I think it's 60 to 70 meters. Um, it's not nearly as accurate as some of these, of course, one of these higher end professional units. But it's more accurate by far than trying to j jig up a, you know, a connect on an iPad or something like that and scan a, a small room, uh, which is really difficult to do, uh, you know, with the with the pro with the consumer level tools because they're frustrating, right? You're you could do fun projects, you can do interesting things, but it gets challenging from a, you know, for a professional to utilize tools like this to uh, to do real projects. If you if you hear what I'm saying, but this BLK unit is actually, uh, you know, it's coming on. It's probably three years old. Uh, Autodesk and Leica sort of put this together directly um, with software and hardware, and it's something that, you know, uh, I wouldn't say any consumer is going to go buy one. Certainly for twenty thousand dollars, it's possible. Uh, but generally, you're, you know, folks doing architecture work, or you know, you just want to capture maybe the interiors of spaces, uh, houses. I wouldn't say it's appropriate for plants or large, very large facilities, things like that. But it's definitely making a headway. And it's kind of the one tool in that sort of prosumer level making a difference. We could go two ways. We can either talk more about like projects you guys have done or talk a little bit more about the, the different types of scanners and different types of scanning technologies you would need per, I think, you know, per size unit, I guess, would be the most logical thing to do. Yeah, let's go that way. And then I'll interject some project examples along okay. the way. Perfect, perfect. So if we're okay, so now we're talking about ultra large stuff, uh, buildings and uh, warships and that kind of thing. And also, apart from the architectural uh, restoration part, like for warships and stuff, there are also like commercial applications today, right? I mean, the, this is also being done right now for for the navy itself and stuff like that, right? Absolutely. I mean, we we do quite a bit of work, and other organizations and even the navy and groups like that themselves are acquiring this technology and learning to do as built. We'll call them as built of ships and subs and you know tanks and vehicles i mean ground vehicles all all over the map um airplanes there's air force bases around the country that are doing this type of work there's just lots of reasons to do this um again it goes to that same story we said about buildings where you know even you know airplanes we fly in and uh you know all these types of things are rarely have been not been they were built before the computer and built before uh, you know we had the CAD that we have today. I mean, very few aircraft even today. I mean, just the last 777 and things like that, aircraft like that, are even you know designed and fully up in the computer. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea is, I mean, you know, I mean, just I'll say it like this. I mean, the big OEMs that make those airplanes, they own those designs, right? Mm -hmm. They they created them in in the computer and they made those tools and they made those airplanes or whatever it is, ships and whatever it may be. And, and if you want to modify your airplane or you want to even modify your, your car, and a lot of people want to modify, you know, put spoilers and, you know, new little add-ons to their, to their cars. And we get this type of inquiry all the time. You know, and the advent of 3D printing obviously makes a lot of that possible. 
Uh, but the problem is these OEMs, you know, Ford and GM and Boeing and Airbus, they all own those designs and they're not going to hand them over. Uh, they mm-hmm. don't put their drawings up on the internet. They don't mm-hmm. publish it. You can't buy them. Even the even the government has very challenging difficulties acquiring mm-hmm. this information and rarely can. We've rarely seen it. So the point is, is that if anyone along the food chain, and I mean literally consumers that want to modify their car or, you know, Lockheed Martin, let's say, or North mm-hmm. Grumman, that wants to modify a you know, F-16 or whatever, uh, in order for them to do their job, they would need to go get this data themselves. Mm-hmm. So either they have this capability in-house and they've acquired it over the years and learned to do this, or they find firms like mine or other firms that are able to go out, uh, deploy to a site, uh, scan an airplane. We we scan airplanes regularly. Uh, we're actually doing, we did one last week and we're doing another one next week. Uh, uh, so we're very busy actually scanning airplanes and, and it's for this exact reason I just described mm-hmm. it. Somebody wants to do a modification, yeah. they, they need the, the shape data, they need the information, and that has to be obtained themselves. So that, that's one thing is like super scary to me that we have like nuclear attack and also nuclear deterrent submarines, and we're not entirely sure how they're built. Right? So we need to scan them <laughs> yes. in order to find out what is there exactly. Being very involved in that process today and have been for many years, it's not as scary as it sounds actually. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, for, I'm happy to report, um, you know, these things are, they're very robust, these things. And uh, it may be that we don't know exactly where things are. I mean, like exactly. It's, they're not airplanes, let's say that. Uh, they don't have the tolerances of airplanes. Uh, we, you know, they know where things are, but it's not, it's not to the, you know, millimeter that uh, maybe airplanes are. Uh, but what happens is you, 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 over the years in something like a submarine or a ship, uh, and an airplane or others, you you modify. You've you've brought in new interior components. You've brought in new, you know, electronics. I mean, certainly uh, over the years, and you know, you have contractors, and there's all these different people doing different things. And you know, maybe at some point you kind of don't know where exactly everything lands. And uh, you know, and then you want to go. Me... To a... it, it's it's not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> the guy the guys flying these boats know what they're doing. I, I'll give you that. I, I... <laughs> Uh, and then, then the second thing that, 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 that triggered this for me was that I was, uh, I was asked at one point, uh, Hod Lipson was doing this thing for the, the White House about trying to figure out a couple of years ago, uh, some years ago, trying to figure out what the recommendations were for 3D printing and stuff. My breakthrough idea that I gave to him was to let the U.S. government take ownership of all the CAD files of all of the things that they commission. So all the vehicles, all the military stuff and everything like that. <laughs> you know, that's... That's a really wild mm-hmm. idea. Um, <laughs> I know Hod; he's a good friend. I, that he, he's yeah. great. You know the Boeing. I mean, they're going to tell you that this is their IP, right? This is yeah. their money. You know, and yeah. uh, you know, I think they would have a uh, difficulty with that, just handing it over. But uh, yeah. I do know that newer contracts are being written in ways in which they get better access to that information. So that, that's a very interesting. I think that's a really interesting application as well, because not a lot of not a lot of people would uh, have access to that or understand that kind of thing. But the really same tri- is true. Uh, yeah. The same is true for just anything. I mean, you could look at Apple and cell phones. I mean, it wasn't until very relatively recently where I think Apple started just said, screw it. We're just going to put the, the CAD file for the iPhone on the computer, not the details of it by any stretch, no, but, but the just, outer case. just yeah. the outer so that case designers could do their job. But okay. that was actually that took a little bit. And trust me, we've we had scanned a lot of cell phones over the years in early days <laughs> because that information was not freely shared. So no, I think it's smart on their part. Yeah, it helps to create innovation and, and move projects forward. I'm, I'm curious about 
taking the point cloud data and turning it into something usable in CAD. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, the how, I mean, over the years, obviously it's been a struggle. So I'm curious how you guys have gone from the early days to now where it's a lot easier to import this data and then turn it into something that you can then turn into an STL file for printing or something of that nature. And and that's a great question, and it's a big part of what we do. Uh, you know, we're in the field taking scanning, doing scanning. We have smaller parts. You know, thing that anything to be shipped comes here, and we scan it. The scanning, in all cases, is I don't know, 10, 20 percent of the project. In most cases, uh, it's that post processing that you're talking about to convert this raw point cloud data into something usable, something transferable, something uh, readable by the you know modern CAD systems. <laughs> Uh, or 3D printing machines or whatever it may be, um, that's the task. That's largely the task. Um, the scanning part's relatively easy. Uh, it's this conversion. All right, so yeah, so a lot, so we look at it like this. There are many different levels. It sort of starts with that point cloud, and then the next level might be something, as you just mentioned, an STL file, a mesh uh, of the, of the, from the point cloud. And there's a lot of great tools in the market to, to convert point clouds into meshes. Uh, you know, there's very, as sort of like, just like the scanning market, there's very professional tools and there's prosumer tools. And then there's, you know, consumer level tools and essentially shareware, freeware and tools like that. And academic software that, uh, you know, you can struggle with and you're probably, you know, you might want to do a project or two here and there, but it's not something you want to build a business around, so to speak. So we've been, you know, we have a lot of tools, a lot of tools, and we look at everything out there on the market on a regular basis for better tools. And we're always working with the OEMs that make these tools to help them improve their products. But, you know, some of the big names over the years that have been on the space, I mean, on the professional side are, there's two kind of big names, uh, Geomagic and Polyworks. Uh, those are the two kind of primary tools for the conversion of point clouds or point data, point cloud data into appropriate, whether it's a mesh or, or potentially ever, uh, ultimately a, a CAD file, a true CAD file. And so that goes to these levels that I was talking about. So you start with the point cloud, you go to a mesh, that could be a process. That's actually probably the easiest step to go through. But to ultimately get into something, and in Eurus, you were talking about the work that we do that's, you know, to convert scans of, of industrial parts, for example, into something that could be, you know, that's CAD, that can be used for manufacturing, actually used to reproduce parts, right? You can cut, cut metal or make castings or things like that. Um, these, these CAD files have to be, you know, very carefully and uh, prepared. And we, you know, we call that reverse engineering generally. Uh, we were, we're actually an engineer trying to figure out how did they de intend this to be designed. Um, and that's, we call it, in fact, design intent uh, type modeling. So what we're trying to do is look at, a, say, a, 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 it's called a geometric part, maybe a, you know, a frame that might go in an airplane or a widget that might go in a motorcycle or a car or something. And, you know, these things have been manufactured. They were designed. They were in CAD, maybe or maybe not, probably not. Uh, they were certainly on drawings. Let's put it that way. And we want, we want to do what our task is, is to scan that thing and then go through the features on that part to create ultimately the CAD model that the designer originally intended that to be if he, if he had used CAD, if there was CAD back in the day when they, had, when they were doing their work. 
Um, and, and so we're talking about things like symmetry. We're talking about, you know, perpendicularity, uh, you know, flatness, all of these things that go into the, the reality of geometric constraints. You know, now your organic shapes, your organic shapes, like maybe a piece of art or sculpture, artifacts, people, medical applications related to people. These are, these are different, right? They're not geometric. They're organic. And we don't need to represent, uh, you know, we're not going to take your hand and make a, a flat plane somewhere. It's it's inappropriate. So we, we typically will stick with a mesh in, in cases like that. Um, there are ways, and we do this a lot too, to, uh, it's kind of new math. I say that, but it's been around <laughs> for 10, 10 plus years now. Um, Geomagic pioneered this, I think, uh, at least 10, maybe 15 years ago. The idea of wrapping what we call a NURB surface, right? So uh, NURBs are the language of com computers for CAD. And so we can wrap very quick, relatively quickly a NURB, mathematical NURB surface over the point cloud, over the mesh, and create a CAD-like model of a very organic shape. Um, and that allows you to bring it into tools like SOLIDWORKS or, you know, uh, Inventor and other tools that are really only, you know, based on the language of CAD. And you can actually manipulate them in CAD. They may not be feature-based. They may be dumb solids, we call it often. But it's still something you could Boolean, you can scale, you can manipulate, you can get volume. There's a lot of things you can do uh, at these various levels that I, I'm trying to describe along the process, if you will, of reverse engineering. For the average, like a high school, let's say for a moment, the a student makes a piece of art and they buy one of the lower priced scanners, like a two $400 scanner, to, just to give a quality range here. How difficult currently would you say it is to do a scan and then be able to output that into a 3D, into a CAD system right now? It's tricky. I'll tell you, it, first of all, I highly recommend everyone in all the schools and all the labs and clubs and you know libraries have basic technology to do this, this low-end scanners, the various tools to do this and should, you know, encourage kids to play with these tools, work with these tools, do projects, etc. Just like we do to, with 3D printing and all of that complements exactly, right? The, the idea of scanning is just simply putting the real world things into the computer. And the idea of printing is just taking these digital files out back into the real world. So it, it, they complement uh, quite well. So the idea of, I'll tell you, to answer your question, I think the way I would say that is you're probably going to end up going to a mesh less rather than a CAD file per se. Mm -hmm. Although I could also define a mesh as a CAD file at some level. Uh, but I would say you're going to a mesh because you're probably going to something like 3D printing. And, uh, and as you, most of the audience would probably recognize, the mesh is all you need as long as it's watertight to go directly to, uh, to the software that you need to slice it up and turn it into a 3D print. Uh, you don't need a formal CAD file per se. That's used for other purposes and analysis and, and other things, design and whatnot. And that's another thing. I mean, you can bring, a lot of times you can bring these meshes as meshes into a CAD software. It may not be in CAD flavor, but you often can use it as a, as a reference. Uh, and you can do your design work around it, which is very popular as well. Uh, so you see it, you sort of can manipulate, you can't manipulate it really, but you can, you can get an idea where things are and then you could do design work around it. Um, so a lot of people are doing that. It's, say you want to bring, you know, you're making something for a, a bike, you know, you want to make sure it accommodates your leg, you know, so maybe you, you scan your leg and you interface it over with this, you know, you start designing around the leg to come up with this, 
device that you want to make. And that, that could be appropriate because the idea is to avoid inter- intersecting your leg with your design. If we're talking about like kind of like room-sized uh, objects, like what are like the appropriate 3D printing technology, 3D scanning technologies for, for kind of like a more of a room-sized kind of uh, a thing if you wanted to scan rooms or, or large objects in rooms? Yep. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff on the market and I know that there's, you know, that we've all seen the, the, the advent of the connect, the Microsoft connect years ago, uh, as a, you know, hundred dollar device that came off the Xbox. Um, I'll tell you, it was a boom for the idea of what we do 3d scanning because, you know, it democratized the concept. It put, mm-hmm. it put a hundred dollar device in the hands of millions of people, I don't know about millions, millions, thousands, if probably millions of people. Tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. There you go. Uh, although I will tell you, I do know this fact. I, I, I think this is true. Um, it was, as I understand it, that Connect, when it when Microsoft released it for the Xbox, it, it was the fastest selling consumer electronic product of all time, which is fascinating compared uh, to iPads and all the other things. Um, I think they sold 18 million units in like a month or something or some amazing statistic. And what I marvel at is the fact that it's a 3D scanner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, here it is of all time, the fastest selling consumer electronic product was a was a 3D scanner. Um, mm-hmm. Nobody was originally using it and intending it to use it per se as a, a 3D scanner. But mm-hmm. as we all know, that kind of evolved and uh, they hacked it. And eventually Microsoft put that stuff out and uh, it's moved forward from there to be, you know, an ubiquitous tool in the sense. Um, and by the way, it's also, you know, been reproduced by Intel as the real sense. And, you know, several other companies have scanners that are very similar in price points. Um, and many companies have created solutions around these now scanners that have, you know, attached them to iPads and other handle-like devices where you can actually just scan around. And, you know, you could do a room. You can do an object in a room. You can do people actually pretty pretty well. And that's become a pretty popular application, I think, for these low-end scanners and, you know, related to 3D printing is the idea of scanning people. You know, be able to do that at a party almost uh, as a ga- as a gift, as a gag. You know, and that's been going on for eight, ten years. People, artists and designers, and you know, entertainment type applications around the idea of scanning people using these very low end tools. Um, sometimes able to capture color, in fact, often, and in some cases, you know, print out in, in color if you're going to a higher end 3D printer. And then these can be, you know, really fun activities for those labs and maker spaces and library groups that we're talking about schools to do because that's you know what better more fun thing to put in the computer than yourself (laughs) has um has the increased interest in uh automated cars and therefore like the lidar systems that they're shoving into cars help to advance the scanning for 3d purposes as well or is that just uh too small right now to really have an impact no, I think it has. Um, I think it has. I think we're seeing, you know, clearly that's a giant market, right? I mean, if if LiDAR becomes ubiquitous in autonomous vehicles, and that's a kind of an if because there's other sensors on the market, and it's certainly, we've all seen it, right? The Google cars, and, and you know, we've all seen this sort of what people are creating so far, and there seems to be a, a LiDAR sensor on the top and spinning around and kind of doing collision avoidance and mapping and telling you where you are kind of a thing. Um, I think no question, right? If you've got big players like Google and Microsoft and, and the biggest players on the planet worrying about autonomous vehicles and at some level worrying about the technology they're going to use, including LiDAR, then what happens is you get a lot of money thrown at R&D 
at this technology. And eventually and definitely that filters somewhere, right? It's going to filter over to the the worlds that I'm in, the, the idea of, you know, actual scanning-based products based on LiDAR. Um, no question about it, the science that's being developed, the research that's happening in universities is all helping to lower the cost of the scanner, the, the poor raw scanning technology that's inside these scanners that I'm that I'm talking about. So, you know, and we've seen evolutions, uh, big changes in price, big changes in capability in the last 15 years. You look, we scanned, I'll throw a story out, we scanned, uh, here's, a, here's one for you, we scanned the Lincoln Memorial, Abe Lincoln sitting in the chair, and we did this in 2001. We actually got a phone call from the government right after 9-11. Hey, we heard you scan stuff. We want to see it. And we, I said, what do you want to see? And they said, how about Abe Lincoln? I said, you got it. So we actually were able to go partner up with another group that had one of these very early LIDAR scanners. And we went down to Washington and we scanned Abe Lincoln sitting in the chair. And, and that each scan back then took 30 minutes. It was forever. But yet we did it. And Several weeks later, we actually walked back over to the into the offices at, down in D.C. and we walked in with a 3D print of Abe Lincoln sitting in the chair. And of course, they looked at me like I was nuts because they didn't understand what that was. And of course, this is 2001. <laughs> right. They really did not understand it. And and actually, scarily, they said to me, "That's great and all, but we need 2D drawings." Oh. And I, exactly, I'm, I'm 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 very appreciative that you're of your own there. Yeah, no, because it's literally what I did. And I what said, do you no think problem. they're going to do, CNC the thing? Are they going to... But they didn't understand. I, I get yeah. it. <laughs> so literally, I literally walked out saying, I'll come back in 10 years when you understand what I just said. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's, I joke about it now, but it's 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 true. I mean, it, it, the adoption of this technology at the core has been a little challenging, but I do think in the last five to 10 years, it's it's really come on strong. And I think the... You know, the the level of awareness of 3D printing has absolutely helped all of that, right? So the idea is now 3D printing under, made the idea of 3D shape and 3D files ubiquitous to where lay people all over the planet kind of understand that. And, and, and somewhere along the line, they sort of scratch their head and say, oh, if I want to 3D print something, I guess I need a 3D file. Where am I going to get that? And yeah. maybe they Google and... You know, maybe they'll find, you know, some of the model databases that are all over the, the Internet and download a file and start doing something. But inevitably, somewhere along the line, they'll say, well, that that's not exactly what I want. I want this particular thing. How am I going to do that? Oh, OK, I could go buy one of these little iPad based scanners and play with it. Or I could hire a professional. I could find a very professional firm and they could scan it professionally. And this this is how the ecosystem works. And it's definitely growing. And we're you know, we're we're. We're thrilled to be part of it, no question about it. It's it's really a right time, and uh, I give you. I, I, here I am plugging. You know, I know you're as you're you're very deep in 3D printing and have been for years. And I I give 3D printing a huge credit for pushing all this technology. But I will tell you, the latest buzz that I'm hearing is AR VR and everything about yeah AR. the Hololens and stuff like that. All of that requires digital files, and again, if if whatever you're going to use those those machines for those virtual reality based systems. If you're going to do anything that's reality-based, then you're probably going to be talking about something related to 3D scanning. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But interestingly, also this also means that the, the LiDAR units, if there's like millions of LiDAR units riding around, right, with these autonomous vehicles, everywhere, like city buses and all this, like not one Google car making, you know, relatively few Google cars can make Google Maps, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. So imagine you have millions uh, of, of, of cars driving around. You can get an updated... 
or a daily, everyday updated dynamic, let's say 3D scan of your whole city or your whole country or potentially like a large part of the inhabited world. You know, I doubt Google's even thought of that. No, I'm kidding. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's exactly their point, right? I mean, that's, yeah. you know, they get to put the entire world into the computer with yeah. this technology. Yeah. yeah but I, I also think that, that it's really exciting that they could then match that up with whatever traffic or daily specials or, yep. you know, uh, traffic patterns, uh, when lights are green, when lights are red, you know, where all the taco stands are, you know, it's, it's yeah. <laughs> We're going to be so much better off, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> where taco stands are. No, no, okay, but that is that is like all of the great technologies. Like we got the internet, and we were supposed that was supposed to change everything. What is it? It's like a, a vehicle for uh, essentially cat pictures, right? That's like yeah. the internet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to be it's going to be mundane, right? It's and soon be, it'll be three D cat pictures. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> it'll be three D scans of your cat. Why doesn't? Yeah. Why well, doesn't you know, cat? we're joking, but. Um, I, I tell you, I'm, I'm actually taking a trip out to L.A. soon, and I'm going to be meeting with a group that does what's called volumetric capture, yeah. which I'm just super excited about. Um, and maybe you've heard of this. If you want me to go into this a little bit, just a little yeah, bit? Yeah, please, please. So you mentioned some of the, the Hollywood work that we do, and we're very proud of the fact that we just finished two and a half years of uh, the Marvel series, Avengers, uh, Infinity War, and uh, Endgame, which actually just released recently, and the, you know, Marvel will be happy that you plug their movie. Yeah, they need, <laughs> they need, they need, they need it. <laughs> Hopefully, I could get Marvel to plug me. Yeah, uh, I know, dude. Yeah, that'll be amazing. But you're in the credits, right? We are in the credits, which we're that's proud. awesome, dude. Yeah, it is pretty cool. It is very cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, but nonetheless, my point is, we, we, the work that we do in that in that space, and we've been we've supported like 50 movies at this point. In fact, we just started a new one this week up in Boston, but um, is the idea of not only scanning with LiDAR technology that we've been talking about, the sets, the locations, the vehicles, for example, that are in these movies, and, you know, by all means, this is for special effects in the movie, right? So, you know, it's, it's a lot cheaper to blow these things up in the computer than it is in real life, right? So uh, that's how they're doing it these days, and they make it look very real, and of course, they're starting with very real scans of the very real objects, which are still in the film, and they got to, when they move over to animation, it better look the same, uh, or we will see it and notice it. And we do this for the actors as well. Uh, we actually scan, we have a, uh, we've developed a photogrammetry rig of cameras over the last 10 years, I guess. Uh, and our current rig has all more than a hundred cameras in a, in a very unique pattern and uh, with special lights and all this. And the idea is we take this to the movie set. We, the actors can come in, stand in the middle, uh, right in the middle, we snap the pictures. It's you know hundreds of pictures going off in one split second, and using photogrammetry software, which is very popular right now, we can reconstruct uh, from photographs uh, this subject uh, in almost any costume and almost any pose into 3D, and it can be very compelling, very accurate, and very high resolution with great color and all this. And of course, again, that's what's used for special effects and you know how they blow them up and you know make them fly and do all these things. Mm -hmm. uh, my point is, is that as you as you've heard me describe, that's a static capture. It's a mm -hmm. single snapshot of a single you know a whole bunch of cameras at one split second, and and that's great for people because people move. Uh, these other scanners like lidar and whatnot that we're talking about, you know, the idea of scanning people with those is not attractive because it's slow and that people would move uh, in the process and that would screw up the scan. Um, so that's hence the development of these photogrammetry camera rigs for an instant capture of a, of a live object, uh, such as a cat. <laughs> um, now, take this all a step farther 
and you do that not just as a single static capture, but as a, a capture over time, uh, as p potentially up to 30 or even 60 frames per second. So now you're inside this rig and you're dancing around or making some motion or or hitting, pretending to hit a baseball or throw throw a ball or a, a golf swing or something, and you're capturing all of that motion, all of that shape, as it changes, you know, during the course of say 15, 20, or you know, minute or something like that, and that can be very interesting and very compelling. And I think actually we're just they're just starting. People are just starting to realize the. The use of that, the implications of that, how this is interesting, where we use it. Um, but the the ARVR world seems to find that very interesting, the idea of doing performance capture, if you will, uh, over time in 3D so that, you know, viewers like ourselves, as we put on these goggles and headsets, can change our viewpoint of what we're looking at. Instead of, instead of what we're used to, staring at a screen, a flat screen, we can actually walk around the performance and see it wherever we want to, uh, from low to high to, you know, close in to far away and get a different perspective on what's happening. And if you think about it, you know, it's one thing to be entertained with something like that. That's, there's a lot of entertainment value to this, but I do think there's going to be a lot of analysis and measurement capability that this brings to bear on the idea of sports, as I, as I'm, as I was mentioning, or even just apparel in general, like how apparel flows on the body when we wear it and when we walk and, you know, how comfortable it is and what works better for us. Uh, I think there's medical applications, right? So, you know, how we walk in our gait, how we swing our legs, how we move our arms, uh, these types of things, if, can, if we can deploy these types of technologies towards these applications, we can probably help solve a lot of problems, uh, you know, with, with medical braces and devices and you know, stroke victims have a lot of problems moving and walking, and we've worked with a lot of patients related to this to understand those gait uh, issues and, you know, floppy feet, for example, or other things that might be wrong with a patient. Um, and, you know, to provide that three-dimensional measurable information to a doctor really adds a whole new dimension to uh, device and planning and medical planning and, and whatnot. Uh, and we're pretty darn excited about it. And there's a lot of hospitals that are adopting this kind of interest as well. Yeah. I think I think for braces and things like post-operative braces and, and, and prosthetics and, and kind of any kind of medically assistive devices, this is very exciting. Totally agree with you that that's that's a huge frontier because yeah, everyone is different and, and you know, things from grips to yeah. head braces to there's a lot of a lot of excitement in the media about like casts and stuff with 3D printing, but you know, m many more other applications like insoles, for example. Handles. Uh, yeah, handles. I love handles. I love I'm the only person ever like super enthusiastic about like let's make 3D printed handles for everything. Golf yeah. clubs and tennis rackets and stuff, and nobody seems to want to do anything with it. <laughs> Well, but, surgical, uh, they're definitely doing it in, in operating theaters and things like that because different doctors have different hand sizes and stuff. Yeah, so, so what's the best way to scan like a patient in a hospital then? Cause, or, or, yeah, and kind of like also for, you know, uh, in an ortho, orthotist's office or yep. in a – what's the best way to like scan a person? So, so these are very, very popular applications lately, and we've been involved with doing medical cases uh, largely with Johns Hopkins Hospital here in, in Baltimore with us. Uh, for over 20 years. I mean, literally doing incredible work, making very highly accurate, personalized, uh, uh, lifelike prosthetics, facial largely, uh, literally making new ears and eyes and chunks of face for people uh, for prosthesis. And that's been very rewarding work. Uh, we've, we've worked with 
hundreds of patients over the years with Hopkins. We've done work at Walter Reed and Mayo Clinic and other places. Um, and to your point, the idea of deploying this technology into the clinic, into the, into the hospitals, has been happening. And I'd say it's only been the last five years where that's actually been kind of affordable enough and, and deployable enough for the clinical setting. Um, one uh, technology we've been very, very, that I feel is working wonderfully in these situations is the handheld scanners from a company like Artec and there's others yeah. that make handheld scanners. Um, they're relatively inexpensive starting in the 10 to 20 to $25,000 range, different capabilities, of course, across that range. And the idea is it's relatively easy, right? It's a small package. You can train an operator in an hour probably how to do a scan. Uh, we've done dozens of these cases and worked with lots of hospitals around the country. Uh, but you, you can scan an arm, you can scan a leg or a portion of an ear for a prosthetic or things like this and learn to manipulate that data. Um, this is also a tech, you know, other side, as we talked earlier, the idea of post-processing needs to be done. So you got to sit down at the computer and, and work through that. Um, there's a lot of low-end scan, um, manipulation software out there. One in particular is called ZBrush. Highly recommend anybody who's interested in digital sculpting take a look at this software called ZBrush. Um, a little tricky because it's very powerful, uh, but it's widely used in the special effects worlds and you know kind of CAD design world, not CAD, but uh, artistic design sculpting world uh, for digital digital design uh, for movies and products like that. But in the medical space, I mean, you're going to take this raw scan data, you're going to manipulate it in a tool like ZBrush. And you're going to clean things up. You're going to you're going to you know make make a final touch up on like say the ear, uh, you know where you can't really scan because you really can't get inside the ear. You might go in there with this digital paintbrush, so to speak, and manipulate that because you know the art, you know the geometry and the anatomy, and you you know what you're supposed to be able to do to to make this thing work. And you know you can you can go in and do this and then send it to a 3D printer. Um, you know, we, we can go through that process. I mean, the idea is, of course, that 3D printing today is kind of limited to, you know, your plastics and resins and materials like that. Uh, we're not quite yet ready. Uh, there's a few lab situations where people are working with uh, silicones and some other things that are almost body ready, if you will. Uh, but today, most of these products or most of these outputs from 3D, traditional 3D printers are not going to be something you can directly apply to the body. Um, and maybe you can if it's a brace or kind of a orthotic or something like that. But in the case of a prosthesis, you're going to want to turn that into a silicone, which is uh -huh. typical. And so the quick process is you simply print it in plastic, which is fine, and you recast it in silicone. Um, likely, you're going to need to t uh, tint it and color it in certain ways to make it you know, appropriate. So uh, you have to go through a, a manual process anyway of, of that level of post-processing. So uh, that seems to be working. I don't know that it's widespread across the country or world, uh, but there's definitely some leaders in that space. I would say Hopkins is probably one of the biggest. Uh, Walter Reed is also adopting this technology rap rapidly. And uh, Mayo Clinic, I, I know for a fact, they're probably the most, uh, uh, definitely the uh, most prolific 3D printing hospital probably in the, in the world, definitely in the country. Um, they've been doing this for more than 10 years, probably 15. There's a couple of doctors in particular that have just championed this process, the idea of 3D printing across the spectrum of applications for medical. And, uh, you know, they're regularly speaking at, at, at some of the big 3D printing conferences, and they're very willing to share their ideas and help other hospitals. And 
you know, there's a lot of groups, professional organizations that have adopted the idea of, you know, how to, how to proliferate this technology throughout the clinical settings like hospitals. And everyone wins. Totally. I mean, I think, I think that that's, that's something that is nascent, and we're seeing fab labs emerge in hundreds of hospitals worldwide right now. And they're running into really prosaic situations where, like, reimbursement from Medicare is an issue and all this. But, but there, are, there are a lot of pioneers in, in that area. So that's exciting. And, and I, think, I think what's also very interesting is, like, look at the other scale. I mean, you're talking about, like, you know, millions of consumers and then scaling it up. Uh, or making the fundamentally altering the economics of the, uh, the of your technology, but you know one thing that could happen is of course we could all walk into a store and get 3D scanned. That's also something I've seen on these like CNN vignettes for over 10, 15 years or something. <laughs> and there's there, there's always like 3D scanning booths, and that yeah, I just think that the, on the human scale, like the accessible human scale. I thought for years already that eventually, like, my iPhone was going to be a 3D scanner, right? Especially since the investments that Apple was doing in the area and Project Tango and things like that. I thought, okay, eventually my phone, too, is going to 3D scan everything around me because it's just so compelling. But that seems to not have happened yet. And then there's I always... think the reasons are, um, and we've kind of been talking about it, I think that it's the scanning is the easy part. It's what do you do with that data? Yeah. It's that's not been worked out for all of these use cases, and I don't think these those use cases are all as compelling as we might think. Um, I do think you could ask the question. I mean, we talked about Google cars driving around, capturing you know the entire world in 3D, uh, and how valuable that must be to Google for all the things you mentioned, including the ability to sell us tacos. Um, But I think the the same is true. I thought the same would be true about the human body. I thought it would be compelling to collect shape information about the 7 billion people on our planet. And, you know, just like Google did with cars where it was sort of, you know, they just sort of subtly put it out there and and teased us with the idea of the value of maps, right? The value of Google maps. And then we were sort of okay with them scanning everything because we got these maps and boy, do we live and love, love these maps. Oh, important now. (laughs) We can't live without it. Right. So, so we're sort of like, yeah, go ahead, Google. You feel free to scan anything you want. Uh, and we all, you know, we joke about this, but there's value there, right? So you have to ask, I, I wondered why there wasn't value in scanning the human body and knowing all these shapes. Now, we all know, and I'm not, I don't want to go too far in this one, but, you know, the idea of facial recognition and the cameras that we all have and the selfies mm-hmm. and the fact that, you know, all of that data is being mined by all the big boys, you know, mm-hmm. to know who all of us are and Facebook and yep. you know, all of that stuff is, is happening in a very big way. Um, but then again, where's the value to us, right? Where are we getting custom orthotics from that mm-hmm. or not? Where are we getting custom eyewear maybe because you mm-hmm. have my face? Um, and I think that these things are going to happen. I think there's been a lot of startups around the idea of you know, companies trying to make business models out of the idea of scanning feet to make orthotics for your shoes or scanning your face to make eyewear custom-made uh, frames, custom-made to your face. All of these things, right, have been tested uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the venture world, right? Uh, we've been a part of many of these businesses, startups over the years. You know, some have been made a little bit more traction than others. I think it's, I think, I'm not a skier anymore, but, uh, or a bicycle rider, you know, a bike rider anymore, but I do think that in the sort of higher-end professional not even professional, but you know, high-end consumer uh, bike riders and skiers, you can go to a store and get custom-made, you know, inserts, shoes, and all that kind of thing. Uh, and scanning is often involved in those processes, and it's deployed at the consumer level in retail. Um, and I think we'll see more of that. I thought it would 
happen a little faster. I agree with you. Uh, I thought there would be, you know, with 3D printing, again, able to make, I mean, that's, look, that's the whole value of 3D printing. I mean, at one level is the idea that any, you can make millions of the, of the same thing with the same, with them all being different. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, we cannot rule out or not pay homage to what's happening in the dental space because yeah. that they've done all this, right? So, you know, many progressive dentist offices have interaural scanners in their lab, in their office, and they scan your mouth, they scan your teeth, and they send that digital information over to a machine that either 3D prints it or mills it very quickly out of a block of something. And, you know, that whole digital workflow is making custom implants and, and whatnot in directly for your mouth individually to you, right? Every 100% custom. And that works. Um, tens of millions, huh? Tens it's of millions. And I think, yeah. and Invisalign is another one, which is yeah. magnificently huge, um, yeah. all based on 3D scanning and 3D printing. Ultimately, not not in the labs per se, but in the or in the I should say not in the doctor's offices, but in their factories where they make this these things. Mm-hmm. And I think I think we uh, could look for others of those, right? I think if you look across the body, the human body, and you say, wait, what other things are we wear? What other things do we find discomfort in? that if it could be more personalized and customized for me uh, and it could leverage 3D printing, uh, then clearly, you know, there will be a case for somebody to make 3D, a 3D scanning scenario for a retail situation. We've been, as I said, we've been involved in many. And one, one in particular was a photo booth that we created a, year, a couple of years ago, not unlike the, the big camera booth that we use for movies, uh, but we, we made it a much, much less expensive technology we actually used Raspberry Pis and what are known as the Pi cams that mm-hmm. you can get for your little Raspberry Pis, uh, which are very inexpensive. Not not awesome, not awesome performance, but you get what you pay for. Uh, but nonetheless, we were able to make a uh, rig of these, a small rig with 20 or 30 of these cameras, capture the face instantly, and literally instantly turn that into something that could be uh, used as a basis for the shape of a, a eyewear eye, uh, that could be then customized and personalized to your face. Um, unfortunately, that particular company, there's been several attempts out there. The one that we were working with didn't make it, uh, didn't work. It, it just didn't have a long enough runway or whatever. Uh, but it wasn't because the technology didn't work. It was, it's the business models that you need to, to focus on and get those worked out. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think, I think it's really exciting. It's a, it's a, it's a very innovative area. This is three scanning the human body and commercializing it, but no one's managed to crack it. I mean, it's a graveyard out there of startups that have tried with the, the, the sense like scanners and the Intel based ones are photogrammetry using cameras, uh, light based, uh, structured light based scanners and all this. It's a total graveyard. And the, and it's really, you know, you're saying, yeah, somehow they're not managing to sell this as compelling to the consumers. Most of these photo booths are like empty. Uh, that, that's on the one hand, and on the other hand, they 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 always seem to run out of money before they uh, before they, yeah. uh, they kind of really make it big. And I, I still it's still there is something in there. Maybe it's the software, just the the software challenge of just making a a, a good mesh out of everything. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I, I actually don't think it's a technical challenge so much. Um, it's a I think this, challenge. Yeah, it's it's definitely a business challenge. It's distribution. It's how you're going to get yourself out there. It's, you know, how are you going to deploy this? Uh, what technology are you going to put in the hands of maybe? See, the other, the other question, and you, you nailed it when you said, you know, you thought your iPhone was going to be the scanner of the future. Yeah. And I think that is a concern, right? So if you're going to deploy, you yeah, know, yeah. thousands of units into a retail space and suddenly Apple, you know, upgrades the phone and the scanner yeah. is in the palm of everyone's hand, you, you blew it. 
right? Yeah, right. You just wasted a whole yeah. bunch of money. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, these are risks. Um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, we're also not seeing that yet. So it's questionable whether what's going to happen here. I'm, I hope that there's folks listening, will listen to this podcast and, you know, they are familiar with, they're the ones doing these startups and are involved in these kinds of ideas and, you know, reach out to you and I and uh, have, we can have a conversation because I think it's, I think there's a lot to be learned. We've, we've been involved with dozens of these types of groups over the years. I tell you what, we started with, with a doctor. It's got to be more than 20 years ago. A doctor came up with the idea of using 3D printing 20 years ago to make custom uh, uh, br uh, braces basically for your hand to replace splints for mm -hmm. carpal tunnel. He goes off and he patents the whole thing. I mean, he patented the whole thing, and he really does own, in my view. I'm not a lawyer, but you know, he owns that, and he could do anything with that. It may expire by now. I have no. Yeah, idea. I was gonna say he owned it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But and, and we tried, and we did a lot of work to create a scan. We we did a prototype, I should say, of the whole process from womb to tomb, where you could put your arm into a machine, it could scan your arm, you pull it out, uh, you know. It wasn't instant nearly as fast as you could do today, but you know, it, within a day or two, you had the file, and, and basically a, it was ready for 3D printing. The materials of 3D printing back in the 20 years ago were very challenging compared to today. Um, and imagine what we'll have in five to 10 years down the road in terms of materials. So all of this becomes, you know, are you at the right place at the right time? That's the, that's the problem. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, everybody, I assume, not everybody, but most people are familiar with this Gartner hype curve. Right, the Gartner hype curve. I, I love this Gartner hype curve. Basically, it demonstrates it can apply to most new technologies and all, all across the spectrum. Um, but the idea that you know something comes out on the market and we all get all excited about it, and just in weeks or months or years, it turns into the what we think is going to be the biggest thing on the planet. And a few months later, or years down the road, it turns into nothing, and it drops off the radar. It just devoid. It just goes away into nowhere. And maybe if we're lucky, something was was real there. And in you know years later, it comes out as something that we all can't live without. Um, and there's so many examples of this. And a good one is the iPad and devices like that. I mean, I was an engineer at an aerospace company 30 years ago with a with a Fujitsu tablet in my hand, walking around the factory taking notes. And I could tell you what, I could barely carry it. It was so heavy. <laughs> and the battery might have lasted 15 minutes. And, you know, it didn't have Wi-Fi. We didn't have Wi-Fi back in that day and all of this stuff. And, you know, it was terrible. And we gave up. We said, you can't, this is never going to work. <laughs> and today, right, I mean, we, we, we wouldn't think of twice about taking an iPad into a, a factory environment to take, to take readings or take notes or, you know, take photographs even of things that we, that we see in a factory environment. But oh, I think... Yeah. I, I, I had one of the first uh, e-books yeah, exactly. in the yeah. 90s. <laughs> it was terrible. But exactly. we all thought it was going to be the biggest thing, you know, and it never, it never, it wasn't at the time. It took, a, it takes a lot of technology to, to develop around it before the, the one idea can, is viable. And, yeah. and another example would be 3D printing. I mean, you know, we all thought 3D printing was going to be in everybody's houses five years ago. Uh, and that's probably a bad idea, and it isn't happening. And yet, 3D printing is thriving, right? I mean, it's never it never waned really mm -hmm. in the scheme of things. The industrial side of 3D printing is exploding. Uh, metals is by far the most explosive side of uh, of manufacturing in general. Uh, the idea of 3D printing metal uh, is just going off the charts, and it's going to change things in five years. We'll we'll see so many revolutions and evolutions come out of it 
in the next five years or more. Uh, and the same is for scanning, right? So, I mean, we're, we, you know, there's been a lot of development over the last bunch of years, and it's going to get to that level of deployment somehow, some way, eventually. And it's going to be because something else was developed, was developed, you know, that, that drove the demand or drove the solution and enabled it to happen. And we're looking forward to that. Definitely, man. We are too. We are too. Hey, um, Michael, uh, thank you so much for, for, for what is uh, a yeah, very informative uh, talk by you and uh, answering all our questions and stuff. I think, uh, yeah, I learned some stuff about 3D scanning. I hope uh, people listening to the podcast learned, uh, learned a lot of stuff as well. So, Michael, thank you uh, so much for visiting us. Yeah, my thanks pleasure. for your time. Very much um, my pleasure. Thank you, guys, and good job on what you're doing. All right, guys. Well, this is the 3D Pod today. Uh, I'm Joris Peels, and with me today was uh, uh, Maxwell Vogue uh, of 3Doodler and uh, Michael Raphael of uh, Direct Dimensions. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.